Hello and welcome to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Palliative Care Australia as part of the National Action Plan Project. My name is Lena Keneva. I'm a journalist and facilitator of this series. This is the second season of a further six episodes which will continue to focus on the experience of families whose children have died from a life-limiting condition. Family members bravely share the joys and sorrows of their experience with the hope that their voices can support, inform and better prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. This is episode two, the heartbreak of infant and perinatal loss. In this episode, we'll hear from two parents discussing their experience of the death of their babies, the many layers of grief and loss for their family and the ongoing impact on their lives. In the studio today with me are Rebecca and Belinda. Rebecca and her partner experienced the joy and excitement of a twin pregnancy, only to have that tempered when the twins were diagnosed with a serious life-threatening condition and were born prematurely in early 2019. The family were able to take William home, but sadly, William died at two weeks of age. His twin Felix has survived and is now three years old. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Belinda is mother to Ernesto and Esmeralda. During her pregnancy with Esmeralda, Belinda and her husband Nigel were told that their unborn baby had a life-limiting condition known as trisomy 18. Esmeralda lived for three months and died at home surrounded by her family in February 2020. Belinda, welcome. Hello. Can I come to you first, Rebecca, and say... Tell us a little bit about that experience of the diagnosis and taking William home. Yeah, so the whole pregnancy was a bit of a roller coaster of emotions. And so immediately when I found out I was expecting twins, I was a bit anxious and a bit worried about the complications that could occur. And then when I was about 17 weeks, a condition called twin to twin transfusion developed, which is a life-threatening condition for twin pregnancies. And so at that stage, I was feeling really pessimistic. And then at 24 weeks, I had surgery to the placenta to try and correct it. And the surgery went really well. And so then the hope started to rise again. But then at 28 weeks, which was just before Christmas, I had an MRI scan. And um, we found that William's brain had been seriously damaged. It's okay. Take a breath. It's okay. As a result of either the surgery or the condition itself, and um, we knew that he wasn't going to have a good quality of life. We are expecting that if he survived, he wouldn't ever be able to walk or talk or eat. And so we made the decision to have palliative care for him The babies were born at 32 weeks because of growth restriction and concerns for the other twin, Felix. And it was really really tough because Felix was really sick too. 
because he was premature as well. He developed sepsis and was in the intensive care unit. And then at the same time we were at home looking after William. Trying to... I don't um, speak about this very often and I haven't cried about it for a long time, but it's really painful to talk about. So, yeah, trying to talk to... um, Like looking after him at home, the sleep deprivation of living with a new baby travelling long distances to get to the hospital every day to visit the other baby. And just, it was just really tough. Yeah. William died at home with us when he was two weeks old. Yeah. And I was really glad that that I could look after him because I felt like I was his mother and I got the opportunity to, to care for him and to experience that and to show him you know, our home and, yeah, it made me feel like he had a home and a place. And Felix came home? He came home when he was about a month old, so there was a bit of a gap of a couple of weeks where William had passed away and Felix wasn't with us yet and I was just going in and out of the hospital all day and trying to breastfeed and all of that was a bit of a blur. Yeah. I'll let you have a chance to catch your breath. Belinda, tell us a little bit about Esmeralda and the experience you had in that delivery and, and what happened. Like with Rebecca, my whole pregnancy was a bit of a, I don't know, I call it a pregnancy of nightmares because um, I'm an older mum and we made the decision to have that blood test done, uh, which I totally forget right now because I know I'm too nervous to remember things like that. But I think everyone knows what that is, is the blood test where you can see if there's anything wrong. And it came out that she had this chromosome, extra chromosome 18. When I got the diagnosis, I think my life just fell apart in second. I remember that and I was home alone. I was just unpacking shopping and the shopping just fell out on the floor. It was just devastating because I already knew what Edwards syndrome is because I read about it when I was pregnant with Ernesto one and a half years before. So after that, we had up and downs. We had a scan with 11 weeks and it looked all normal because there's still the chance that the diagnosis is wrong. And then 13 weeks looked still very positive. And then 16 weeks, the markers were flashing up, like the water in the brain, just a twofold cord rather than a threefolded cord, umbilical cord. And I think with 17 weeks, we made the decision to have a amnocentesis test, which then confirmed the trisomy 18. And then because we made the decision, um, and that's our conscious decision, not to abort the child, I made the decision to carry it through. But it was a bit of, we didn't know how long she's going to go. We didn't know if she's going to make it. And I have to say, every time we went into the hospital, we had different kind of diagnosis. Sometimes I thought like, oh, she's going to go not till the end. And then the next two weeks, it was, oh, she's going to go through. So it was a bit of a massive roller coaster for me and I never knew what's happening. But in the end, she went through and I gave birth with 41 weeks. I actually kept her in as long as I could. I just thought as long as she's with me, she's fine. And I didn't want to leave her because I thought she's not going to make it much when she comes out. And we weren't even sure if she makes it through birth. So it was actually at the birth when I was induced with 41 weeks because she probably didn't want to come either. She was just happy being in there. (laughs) Before I was induced, I 
it was just we had to say goodbye because we didn't know she's going to make it. Yeah, and she actually she was born. And my first question is if she's alive because she didn't make a tone. And then she was like, <laughs> she made those squeaky noises, which Edward's and John babies do. <laughs> they don't really cry, which was so cute. After that, she just wanted to have food all the time. But even after this, we then find out the next day that she actually had a massive hole in her heart, in her two major chambers, which was the cause of her death after all. Uh, yeah, and we didn't know. I mean, we thought she's going to die after two weeks, but then she pushed and pushed and she made it to 16 weeks, which was nice. I mean, at the very end, I had her home and nursed her home for 10, ten days. And I'm, if I would go back, I would do exactly the same because I think it was just um, for my son and Esther as a family and for her, it was the best. I Not that I'm saying the hospital is not good and I know sometimes it's the only option you have, but in our case, it was an option, and I just loved the fact that we had this family bonding, especially at the very end, where I felt like at least we were a family of four for a very short time. These are devastating things to happen to families, devastating events, not just for you and for your immediate family, for the rest of your families. What was the most helpful support you received. You talked about palliative care. Rebecca, what were some of the things that helped you get through this? I guess I was just really worried about him suffering. We had a big bag of drugs in our house and I just, it was very comforting knowing that they were available if needed because we were in the same position where I thought he might not even be born alive. He might live for maybe an hour because we were expecting that he wouldn't breathe on his own. And so then we're in a really unknown sort of position as to how long he's going to survive for. And I just knew that his life was short and I didn't want him to suffer at all because I didn't see any point or gain in that. And so it just from a palliative care point of view, it was comforting to me to have access to those things so that I knew I could do something if he started to be distressed. And they were at the end of the phone if you need to ask them what to do? Yeah, exactly. Although I had, I didn't call very often because we had really detailed instructions. But yes, they, yeah, there was a phone number I could call at all times. So that was comforting, knowing you knew what to do with that bag of medication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and Belinda, what what was some of the the good things that were helpful support for you, given the turmoil that was happening around you? We chose palliative care as well because when when I was pregnant, we had to make a plan and I thought that was a good help to actually get down, even though it was terrible when you're pregnant and, you you know, every mother knows that you're so over-emotional and this just puts another layer on the emotions when you're as a pregnant woman. But it was helpful to kind of know what's going to happen, what we what we want, and we had enough time, so we had seven months to actually make those decisions we decided palliative care and we had palliative care um, at the end and during the whole time when she was actually after she was born coming home with us so I had instruction I had phone numbers I had some medication at the very end I had loads of yeah a whole cupboard full of medication but we also when she was very sick and she was on morphine at that time even though I got really good instruction to give her some of it and um, we also had a nurse from from palliative care coming on a daily basis just to make sure that the driver which was inserted with the butterfly two things I have not forgotten <laughs> it just means that morphine was constantly 
given into her body. They just made sure that it's working all right and everything is okay. And this nurse, I have to say, she just came in every lunchtime with a big smile. And I know it sounds a bit weird, but that was our such couraging. It gave us just enough strength for the rest of the day till the next day because she was so positive. And I think that was such a good help that you actually have someone who comes into a house and... It's not doom and gloom. Yes, it is doom and gloom and the child is dying, but at least your world still has some smiley faces around you, which helped us so much. What sort of options were you considering on a day-to-day basis in terms of her care? Well, there was, can't remember the medical term, but um, intervention, I think, where you have operations and you inter- intervene. For example, the question was, if she's born and she's literally at the verge of dying, shall we bring her back to life? Shall we do that or not? Um, and we just decided, well, we wanted to give her the best. We didn't want to uh, stress her. And we thought if she she's not going to live long, if she's um, she wasn't mosaic, she was full trisomy 18 and her life... Her life wouldn't have been nice because we don't know how she's going. If she's going to, she wouldn't have been able to, to walk, to talk, all those things. So I, we decided we want to give her palliative care and just let nature take its turn and see how far she goes. I mean, she was a massive fighter and she did surprise, I think, some of the medical professionals in-house because even before she died, we had meetings with the cardiologist to have an operation, but they can't operate until I think babies are four months or a certain weight. And she didn't hit both of those, but she was shortly before that. And yeah, it was on a Thursday we saw the cardiologist and, he's, and we were actually starting to talk, changing our mind of like intervening after we said we only want to have palliative care. But then three days later, she went, she decided something else. It was her decision. So we went with her decision. Does this resonate with you in terms of options available and, and, and the things that were good for you in supporting you? Rebecca? Yeah, I mean, I felt the choice to me was pretty clear because the neurologist we saw had painted a very bleak picture of what William's life would be like if he survived. So to us, we didn't want him to have to go through that and we didn't sort of had the option of termination of pregnancy where you're putting the other twin at risk and so you know for us there was really only one clear path yeah what were some of the things though that you perhaps thought were unhelpful support yeah I mean I guess a lot of people are just insensitive without thinking about it and we had several people including staff members say things along the line of essentially we should be grateful for what we have The other trouble I had with a lot of my negative experiences was related to the hospital bureaucracy and ours being a really individual situation and having the same rules that's applied to everyone applied to us, I felt was quite hurtful in a lot of situations. So for example, they have a rule that you're not allowed to carry your baby around in the maternity ward, that if you're moving your baby from place to place, you have to move them in a cot. I just had a caesarean and I couldn't walk very far. And Felix was in a NICU that was a long distance from the postnatal ward. And so my husband had pushed me in a wheelchair while I was carrying William. And they said we weren't allowed to do that. And to me, I was like, like, if I drop him, so what? Like, what's the worst that could happen? He's dying, you know. And I feel regret that I didn't advocate more for myself and my family. I'm a healthcare professional myself and 
even that didn't make it easier for me to say, you're in such a vulnerable position and for me to say, this is really stupid, I'm carrying him and I don't care what you say. And there were two other instances where similar things happened and one was they said when we were taking William home, they said it's hospital policy to weigh the babies on discharge and we have to undress him. And he hated being undressed and was so distressed by it. And I just let them do it. And I feel really, I feel a lot of regret for them. I think these are, these are topics that other people listening to this will be, you know, encouraged by your, your pain of this, really. You're able to articulate what happened. And, and a lot of parents aren't and don't get the opportunity. So I'm sure that this experience will help others and, and those making those rules and able to articulate them perhaps in a much better way than the way you've seen them. Yeah. And I mean, the third thing was William actually died in my husband's arms while we were visiting Felix in hospital. And the nurse in charge of the ward said, this is a visitor who's died in the hospital. I'm calling the coroner and you have to wait until the coroner comes and takes the body away. And I did actually stand up at that point and say, no, I'm leaving. And if you want to detain me, you can call the police because I'm not staying here and waiting for the coroner. That's ridiculous. And eventually one of the um, neonatologists came and said, I'm sorry about that. You can go. Very distressing time. Mm -hmm. Belinda, can you recall some of those unhelpful supports? Yeah, it was like seven months on. (laughs) It was on and off. It was, I just... You know, when you get the diagnosis with the blood, you, you're going to be sent into the genetics department. And I thought, it's all about numbers. And it was like, look, you're 43, therefore you wouldn't have very little chance to have a healthy baby. That was what she said to me. And I was just, and then she said, like, yeah, we want to do abortion. And I was like, no, I'm not doing abortion. My husband was sitting next to me. And she said, what do you think? And he's like, she just gave you an answer. I don't see what does, yeah. So that was that was one thing. And I, I thought like, this is a very difficult information you get. And yes, I know some people choose to abort, but I think if you make the decision not to, then you should be left alone. And even on the 36th weeks, when I had one of those lengthy discussion, we had weekly meetings, which were going for two hours. As you can hear from my accent, I'm not from here. We don't really have family in Melbourne. So I had to take Anessa along. And it's a two-year-old toddler who had to be in the room for two hours every time, which was terrible, but we had no other option. And I wanted my husband to be there because I wasn't functioning properly in my brain at that point in time. I was too emotional and I needed him to listen to important information. And yes, so they're giving us all those options and what could happen and outlines. And it was like one week, oh, she might die within two years. The next week, she might live for eight years. The next time, oh, she might live for any two days. And it was like every week was a different diagnosis or different kind of options. And I, I'm just, I was so overwhelmed that sometimes when we made that plan about palliative, what we want to do and what not, I didn't even know what to say. I was literally, and I remember I had a phone call once I was in a shopping centre and saying, are you sure you don't want to put the nasal gastric tube in? And I'm like, what, what? It was just in the middle of the day and I just said, like, I can't talk to you about this. And I think the person who did that was actually very apologetic afterwards. 
she just thought it was very important to rediscuss this because we were coming at the end and I could have given birth any time. I know why she was doing it, but at that point in time, I was just overwhelmed. And I think I'm not criticizing anyone, but I think that's something as a professional, you have to bear in mind that the other person on the other side of the line, especially when it's a pregnant woman or someone who's just grieving, you're not, you don't function. I, I, Mentally, I did not function. I was not there. I mean, I was there, but it was just like my brain was doing this. Yeah, I can't explain. It was just going all over the place. My brain is having a, I don't know, I would say a storm happening in, up there. So I couldn't really, it was all too much. I wouldn't say it's totally un, unhelpful, but it was not making it easier. So, yeah, that's the only thing I can say. That's what I, I experienced a lot to experience in that time frame. Rebecca, what about family and close family? How did the extended family network acknowledge what was happening around you and perhaps support you? Yeah, we're really lucky to have a lot of family in Melbourne. My husband's and my both, both our families are in Melbourne and they were really great. I'm not someone who's very comfortable talking about emotions um, and how I'm feeling, but they were just... They were with us all the time. They offered a lot of practical support and things like cooking us meals or going and doing our grocery shopping for us, those sorts of practical things I really I really valued and I actually really valued being able to involve them in the whole process and have a memorial service for William. The Royal Children's Hospital actually organised a baptism, which is really important for my husband's family in our house. I just found that really, really beneficial to be able to have our family there for that process. So I think it definitely brought our extended family closer together. Now, Belinda, you've said you don't have extended family here or close family here. Who did you rely on for some of that, you know, emotional support? No one. I think that was the worst part of this whole thing. Did, did palliative care offer you someone they, to talk to? They did. And I think they, they were actually really good. I, I want to say they were really helpful and they realised how hard it was for me because I had to wait every day till nine o'clock to call my parents to just talk to them and finding out that my parents are actually overwhelmed with this too was just not helpful. Of course they were. They didn't expect that. I was I was so happy that palliative care actually helped and that's where I want to say a big thanks because I think without them I would just completely broken down because it was too much for me to bear. I mean, I had my husband, but he was equally as destroyed as I was, or still is. And I think the palliative care, they offered us so many things, like they actually asked us if we want to have someone there if we're religious, if a priest should come or whatever, someone from our religion to come when we give birth in case she dies or baptism, if that's something which is important. I mean, they, they gave us all those options and they gave us our option to take photos and have jewellery done and, and all of this. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful because I think I would not have been able to, to do those things with the state of my mind. I was, I was not focused. I was not organised. You can't be organised when you go through something like this because everything is a washy thing. Nothing else matters, really. No, you're just you're just focusing on 
you literally just take a day as it is and you just hope when you wake up that you get through the day halfway normal. <laughs> yeah. We've heard in the podcast before the term a, a hug and a cup of tea, which is not always available to everyone. And if you have an extended family uh, like Rebecca, but you probably missed out on the hug and a cup of tea. I did. I, I actually had two friends who I... I told the story from the outset and I was very upset the way they dealt with it. Literally, they couldn't deal with it. I call it like this. They they just threw me in the bin because they couldn't. De- they didn't know how to deal with me and therefore they didn't know what to say. Therefore, they just stepped back, were unreachable anymore, didn't pick up phones, didn't answer text message. And that was just my very bad experience about my community. I think that health professionals would need to understand, in your case in particular, what are the options, the additional options for you? And the same for you, Rebecca. What do you think you would say to other health professionals about what they need to understand about what's happening? One thing that really struck me was how vulnerable I was. And I'm not someone that usually takes comments to heart. If I feel like the person didn't mean it to come out that way, I can brush things off very easily. But when I was in that emotional state, I couldn't. And all of those thoughtless comments cut really deeply. And so I would say that you just have to really consider your words and the effect that they might have on the person that you're talking to. It's something they might carry with them for a very long time. Rebecca, so what what will you remember most in that very short time you had at home? He wanted to be cuddled all the time and he'd be very unsettled if we ever put him down. And he was 1.3 kilograms when he was born and similar weight to Felix, but he lost a significant amount of weight. And so I don't know what he was when he died, but would be under a kilo. And so I used to just tuck him in my shirt, my crop top and carry him around that way. And my husband and I would take shifts overnight to cuddle him and try and settle him. He was really unsettled overnight. And so that huge degree of sleep deprivation really contributed to the difficulty of the whole situation. I did get a strong sense of his personality, even though he was so young. I felt like Felix, his twin, was always the dominant twin. I could feel it in the way they moved and you could see it on the ultrasound and that William was just much more passive and kind of taking cues from his brother. And we've got several pictures of them cuddling together because the staff were really good at letting us put them in the cot together. And William was always snuggling up to Felix and Felix would tolerate it for a short time and then push him away and scream until they took him out. So he's definitely a lot more physically affectionate and a lot more just kind of easygoing and taking things as it comes. Belinda, what are those memories you have of what Esmeralda was like? What sort of personality did she develop in that short 16 weeks? She was extremely switched on. She would remember voices or recognise voices. And when I was talking to my mum over the phone and when my mum called again and I would put her on loudspeaker, she would turn the head towards where the phone was. Because we didn't know when she's dying, we literally took her everywhere. We took her to Sue, took her to the shopping centre, we took her there. And I know it sounds, I wouldn't, you know, normally you don't do that with a newborn baby, but we just took her along and we just, yes, I didn't get much sleep because she was constantly hungry because of her condition. But I think it's worth, it's worth the pain 
so to speak, because I wouldn't miss anything in the world. And she loved to be held all the time. That was just her favorite thing. And unfortunately, I couldn't breastfeed her. So I was pumping and feeding her with a bottle. But often I, I actually ask my son if he wants to. And he sometimes did hold the bottle. So it was kind of his contribution to his sister. And sometimes when she made her squeaky noise indicating she's hungry, he would bring the bump to me because he already knew what that meant. And it's all those little memories we have at home, which I think are so valuable. And we actually made a photo album for him, but he wanted to include half of the book with Esmeralda. So, and he goes through it once in a while. He takes the photo album and he just literally goes through and remembers. And I think this is so important because, yes, sometimes when I look at it, I get a tear or two, but then it also warms my, my heart because I know we tried to have a family life for at least little as as little as she was on earth. And I think this is the most important thing, try to make the most out of it because there's no turning back. So just value every minute as much as you can. I found it actually really hard to leave the house with him because he looks so abnormal and people would comment. So I felt like we were trapped inside our house because he was so tiny, you know, less than a kilo and very, very skinny. I mean, I even went down to the hospital cafeteria when we were visiting Felix and a cleaner said, is that a real baby? And I just sort of glared at her and she walked away. But, you know, I didn't even feel safe taking him out of the special care nursery, really. Both of you have had loss very, very early in the delivery of your children. How have you survived, if that's the right word, in that time, what's what's improved and what hasn't improved for you both, Rebecca? Um, I mean, day-to-day life's definitely easier. I think at the time you're in a crisis mode and sort of like what Belinda was saying, you're just getting through the day. You can't process things. You can't think about normal life stuff like what meals you're going to cook this week or how you're going to get to work or where you might like to live or where your career's going. Those sorts of things you can't even start to consider. You're just getting through each moment. And so gradually those sorts of parts of life started to come back. And definitely day-to-day is a lot easier. But I still feel a lot of grief and sometimes it will hit me at unexpected times. One of the hardest parts for me was going back to work. I'm an obstetrician and I'm around pregnancy loss a lot. And I went back to work quite early uh, when Felix was about three months old And I just felt like I needed to for my sanity and my mental state. And it did help in some ways, but in other ways it was really, really hard. And things would catch you out suddenly. And so, you know, on my first day back at work, I had a patient come in whose baby died in labour. And that was within a first hour of me being back at work. And I just thought, I can't, I can't deal with this situation you know, another day we were just having a normal day and the, they have um, something called a cuddle cot where they keep the babies after they've died, they keep them cold so that the body doesn't deteriorate and you can keep them the babies with you for longer. And so the people from cuddle cot were coming to show us their new equipment and tell us about how to use it and how to set it up and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as I saw that logo, it just brought this overwhelming rush of grief. And so... You know, work, I've gotten definitely a bit desensitised to it because it's a few years on now, but I still find twins very difficult to deal with. 
and I have a hard time delivering twin pregnancies and I avoid it where I can. You're right at the firing line, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. Belinda, how have you progressed, not progressed over time? Has that time helped you? I, th- I think it has. And I think one thing, I I was suggested by VSK, very special kids. They offered me a counsellor and I actually spoke to her and I spoke to her in the beginning a lot. And I let everything out, all my anger, all my anxieties, all my... I dry, sometimes I just cried an hour or even one and a half hours. And there is a group in the evening where we have Zoom meetings once a, once a month where just literally grieving parents just share share their pain. I mean, it sounds a bit weird, but sharing is actually caring after all. Even if you share pain and and baby loss or child is child loss, it's any child loss, it's any... There's children who died with 20, but I mean, they're still children, they're still their children, they still died and it's still sad. So I really get a lot out of this because it just helps me. I think in the beginning it helped me. I'm not the only one. I felt because I was not close to my family and... She died and three weeks later we went into lockdown, which didn't help at all. But it is what it is and we can, I don't want to even go there. <laughs> it was for me the only connection with the outside world and, and feeling actually in a safe space where people actually understand what I'm saying because I realised that a lot of people around you, it's not that they don't want to understand, but they just simply can't. It's just simply out of their possibilities or out of their kind of like reach they don't as much as they want to and as much as they sometimes they just I had people saying it's now been a year why are you not moving on and I'm like there's nothing like moving on it's just trying to live with it trying to make it part of your life and I think yeah I I think we spoiled our son he's just unfortunately become a bit of a spoiled brat for a year because we just put all my love and all my emotions I just throw over I had like too much love. I had a baby which I couldn't love to this stage. So I threw it over to my son, who's very, and I had to work with him a lot um, just to get, he remembers every single thing. And I worked, as much as I worked with him, it helped me as well. I made it open for him to talk about Esmeralda with me. In the beginning, I was burning out in tears all the time. And I reassured him, I see he's not making me um, sad. It's Esmeralda, he makes me sad because she died. But he's now so open and it helped me actually processing as well. And I think as much as I, yes, I, I drove into this, I drove into the car park today and I burst out in tears and I didn't expect it. But as Rebecca said, things just trigger you and you don't know when they come. And yeah, I think as long as you're with safe people who understand that you might have to see the awkward outburst of tears, you kind of like go on with your life. Do you talk to Felix about William? Yeah, so he knows he has a brother who died. I mean, he's three and a half and so he does actually bring it up sometimes now. He'll say, William was my brother and I'll say, yes, yes, he is your brother. And so we we're the same. We always wanted to be really open with him, to not have it to be a forbidden or a secret topic and something he feels like he can ask us about if he ever wants to know anything that he doesn't have to feel afraid to ask. Rebecca, how... Have your opportunities to make memories, to keep memories, to keep him alive in your family? We were offered a lot of things when he was born and most of which I just said yes to because I couldn't really think through whether I wanted it or not and I didn't want to regret not doing it later. So 
we got footprints made and we had Heartfelt come and do a photography session with us in the hospital. So we got photos of the lots of photos of the babies together, which is really precious to me. And we got some necklaces made with the footprints and things as well. My husband and I actually both got a tattoo to remember him by. Belinda, what have you done to, to keep this memory alive of Esmeralda? More or less the same as Rebecca. We did say yes to everything as well because we, we wanted to, to take every opportunity to actually, we didn't know, you know, if she's going to be alive, not alive, what were we having. We we got the photos from Heartfelt as well and this is actually the necklace with a footprint and handprints, I mean mini, miniature, but um, I was just happy about this and I carry it a long time and I think that was super helpful because especially photos, I I didn't really take photos when my son was born and I regret it. But just imagine how much I would regret it with Esmeralda if I didn't. And I was so happy that that was actually organised. And that was so super helpful. And I know with the footprint and handprint with the jewellery, they keep it for years and years and you can actually go back in 10 years. That's what they told us. If someone all of a sudden you want to get a new print of something, you can actually get it. So it's not just something for the now and yet. And you don't have to do it immediately. We only got the jewellery done a year later. So they actually just keep it on file and they wait for you to call when you're ready. So I think it's a good, I would suggest that to anyone. And if it's too hard at the beginning to actually do that because they don't want to be reminded, then you can still have the option to do it later on. I mean, not the photos, but of course the jewellery, I mean. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a great idea. You're wearing a beautiful silver chain with a beautiful heart around your neck. So inside uh-huh, is a... Footprint, yes. Oh, into the metal. There's a footprint in the middle of the heart and a handprint. Wow, that's pretty spectacular, really. (laughs) What would you like to share? Um, I'll go to you first, Rebecca, for other families about the experience that you've had. And it's a broad question, but, you know, what sticks in your mind that you think other families would like to know and that you can share? Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing is I would wish I'd been a little bit more patient with myself. I wanted to kind of get back to things and kind of live my normal life. And, you know, in medicine, there's sort of an expectation that as a doctor, you don't need to eat or sleep. (laughs) You don't need to be sad. You can just take things and keep going. And so being in that culture for so long, I had that expectation of myself as well. And I probably pushed myself too far to do things like go back to work, go back to regular exercise when I really didn't feel up to it. And I just had a cesarean section and trying to just feel competent and in charge of my life again. And I wish I'd been able to say, actually, you might need a little bit more time. You might not be quite ready yet, especially at work. I, I never wanted to be the person to say, I'm sorry, I can't do this. So I'd push through and I think sometimes to my detriment. Belinda, what would you like to share? I think one thing which is really important, I just expected after a short time I will just get on with life. Because I had, I, I'm coming from a very big family and I had loads of people, you know, uncles and aunties, um, which are elderly, they died. And I had loads of people, even friends dying in my life. And as time goes on, you just get on with life. 
and I kind of have the expectation this is just one thing I can just brush off because I I grew up in a household where we just get on. We just get on and move on. We just don't sit on it. We just move on. And I think I had to learn, and I think that's where I think a cancer was really good. I had to learn to listen to my so-called inner voice that get on is not the option here. It's just give yourself time, pamper yourself. Yeah, I got actually a voucher from the VSK for a massage. And I know that sounds really bizarre, but it was the best thing ever. I mean, I had to postpone it uh, a few times. I got it after she died and because of lockdown, I had to postpone it. But I think it was just like my pamper time. After two years, I could actually get myself pampered. And it sounds a little thing, but it was a huge thing for me because I I forgot who I was when I was pregnant. Then when she was here looking after her because it was very time consuming. And then, of course, I had a toddler. So I just needed to sit back and think for yourself and it sounds selfish but I think sometimes to heal you need to be selfish to a certain point of time and not it doesn't mean to be mean to the surroundings and I always had time for my son or my husband but I mean sometimes you just need time to myself and um, we actually had that really well whereas my husband doesn't talk much and I think he was happy to just look after my son and just get distracted rather than sitting there and thinking whereas I needed to sit in my room and just cry sometimes. And I needed that time on my own mm. without my child around because I didn't want him to see me crying all the time. <laughs> but I think just take time and don't try t- to push. I think I tried to push and accelerate things. Didn't work, <laughs> which I had to learn the hard way. So I think just give yourself time and it will get better. Does that resonate with you too, Rebecca? Yeah, it definitely does. A very special kids. I was involved with them too. They were great. They have all sorts of services available. Like they've got things like holiday homes that you, that are available for your use and the counselling and all that kind of thing. But every time they would offer me something, I would feel like, well, I don't deserve this. I haven't done anything to, to qualify for this. And I'd say, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> I think, you know, just say yes. <laughs> I, I did that think that in the beginning as well but then I I, after I think three phone calls I thought like okay I'll give it a go (laughs) and I realized afterwards how healing it was because I could for the day that the first session I had I just got all my anger out I mean poor person who was on the other side but I think at least they're they're professionals (laughs) but anyway I, I think don't say no just give it a go at least once or twice it's not hurting you so and it might just help One of the things we did talk about also was carrying this grief into the future. Have you thought about where this will go? How will you take your experience, your memories, your associations into the future? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's something I haven't really thought about too much. I mean, one thing the counsellor from Very Special Kids said was that in some ways having gone through this experience will make me a better doctor and I think that's probably true even though it's harder I think probably will make it make me better at dealing with perinatal loss I think you know you definitely learn from it and I think one thing that Belinda was talking about that some of our friends just I think felt intimidated or frightened and just didn't know what to do and so just didn't do anything and that's actually really hurtful I mean it doesn't matter if you don't quite say the right thing but it's really it's really useful to us to know that other people haven't forgotten about him and 
it was interesting to see which friends faded away and which ones stepped up and it was not the ones I was expecting. So I guess I'll be able to better help other people that are going through loss. And then I guess I just don't want to forget him. We just want to keep those photos and things around and, yeah, so we'll always have a place. Belinda, how do you think you'll carry this into the future? One thing I've done, I've done a dramatic career change, even though you're not supposed to do that, but I did. (laughs) She was three months into her death. We were in lockdown. My brain was going absolutely numb and crazy because I was literally staring at the point and the space where she died. And I just wanted to do something which I can just get my brain busy. And I started studying early childhood education just as fun. I thought I'm doing it a year. If I don't like it, I haven't really lost anything. I just got some knowledge which I can use or not. But I actually really enjoyed it. And I'm actually realized I'm really good with children now, more than I thought before. (laughs) So I'm actually doing this now and I'm actually thinking of going further with this. But I think before, just to let you know how dramatic it was, I was a risk manager in a bank, so completely different. I try to help as much as I can and I really enjoy those group sessions where grieving parents and just last week uh, we had a new mother who just lost her child 16 weeks ago and I've been helped by another one two years ago and I actually tried to give her the same comfort that I got from another person in that group just to know that there is actually light at a tunnel and I think it's so important. I had the experience, I didn't have really a big community field where I could rely on, but I think if you don't know those things, there's a lot of things you don't know when you go into this grieving stage of losing a child, That how your friends and people around you will react, how they will be. And I think it's actually a, a big thing if you know, you might get weird response and I wished I would have known that before because I was really, I was really like confused about the reaction. So I wished I would have known that before, and I think it helps other ones to know that. So I really hope, I really try to help people in the future who have similar experiences. I just want to thank both of you, uh, Rebecca and Belinda, for sharing such a heartbreak story of losing a child so soon, losing any child. But the experience you've had has been very rough, I would say, and we're so pleased you were able to tell your stories with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital, together with the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and Palliative Care Australia, would like to thank the parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening. <laughs>